Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hey, everybody. First of all, I want to welcome our new listeners. We've gotten a lot of new listeners over the last couple months, and I just want to say welcome. Welcome to the Emerald Podcast. Welcome to the Emerald Podcast community. And for those who are new listeners, do be sure to go back and check back episodes going back a few years now. There's a lot of treasure to be found in those older episodes. And I also want to say to the new listeners that this podcast really runs on Patreon support. It's what allows me to do this podcast full time. It's what allows this fairly unique vision of storytelling and sound editing and audio acoustic mythopoetic journeying to be possible. It's what helps me pay for studio time and pay the musicians that I work with and spend hours twiddling away on flutes and tamburas to make this all possible. So if you're interested in supporting this artistic vision, it means a lot and it goes a long way. And you can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. Patronage starts as low as $6 per month. And all patrons receive access to two monthly study groups in which we dive deep into the topics that I explore on the podcast. It's a really wonderful community that's developing around these conversations, and I invite you to be a part of it. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Emerald Podcast. Also letting people know that I will be offering once again a year-long course entitled The Mythic Body starting in October 2023 and continuing on till September 2024. It's a chance to take a slow, long, deep dive into the mythic and to really start to establish a foundation of knowledge of mythos and animacy and ritual protocol that can form a good basic foundation for whatever tradition you practice. It's about waking up creative flow, waking up ancestral sense faculties, waking up wonder, deepening our understanding of the animate world and our relationality with it. It has application for how we approach our wilderness exploration, how we approach daily ritual and whatever practice tradition we're in, how we approach our creative process, how we approach our somatic work, how we approach our work with others. So if you're interested in this deep foundational mythic dive, send an email to themythicbody at gmail.com and you'll be on the list. If you're already a podcast patron, you don't have to send an email. You'll receive the info automatically. If you're not yet a podcast patron and you want to receive info specifically on the Mythic Body course, then again, send an email to themythicbody at gmail.com. Applications will go out in June. There is an application process involved. And then there will be informational and orientation meetings later on in the summer for those who are wanting to attend. And because we have a lot of new listeners, I wanted to reissue an episode 
an episode that is really foundational in understanding what this podcast is all about, what the vision is that we're working with here. It's an episode called Animism is Normative Consciousness. And I recorded it first a couple years ago before I really started to dive deep into the musical foundations of the podcast and utilize music as storytelling and sonic journeying tool within the podcast, which you'll hear in a lot more of the recent episodes. So I decided in honor of this reissue to make it not just a reissue, but also a remix. And I went back and I added new music to this episode. So for new listeners and listeners who've been around for a few years now, I think you'll enjoy the remix, remaster, reissue of this foundational episode, Animism is Normative Consciousness. Animism is Normative Consciousness. The title of this episode speaks for itself, really. For 98% of human history, 99.9% of our ancestors lived, breathed, and interacted with a world that they saw and felt to be animate, imbued with life force, inhabited by and permeated with forces with which we exist in ongoing relation. This animate vision was the water in which we swam. It was consciousness in its natural dwelling place, the normative way of seeing the world and our place in it. It wasn't a theory, a philosophy, or an idea. It wasn't actually an ism. It was felt experience. It lived in bones and bloodstreams, in horripilated hairs rising to meet a world of equally vibrant mists. It lived in tongues and teeth, in spines and eyes, in points of meditative focus found in downward and upward gazing. It lived in the gurgling of streams, the pounding of drumbeats, the sound a breath makes as it passes through nostrils. It was an ongoing discussion that took place most often without words. It was, simply, how things were, which is why it has been commonly understood across the entire world for all of time. We'll explore what this animate vision specifically means a little further on, but it's important to get a few things really clear right at the beginning. One is the scope and scale that we are talking about here in terms of time. So again, if you're a human being, and I take it by the fact that you're listening to this that you probably are, then at least 99.9% .9 of your ancestors were animist. 99.9% .9 of your ancestors. The vast, vast majority of your ancestors lived in the Paleolithic, the long golden age of the animate. Perhaps for this episode, we'll call it what it really should be called, the normative era. If you line up a thousand people and 999 of them see the world one way and one of them sees it differently, who's normative? The 999. To put it in more stellar terms, the comet Neowise, which arrived in the skies for a few weeks earlier this year, it appears once every 6,800 years. So that means Neowise has appeared in the sky 50 times since what science tells us is the dawn of anatomically modern humans. Only one of those times falls into what we call recorded history. This means Paleolithic is the rule, we're the exception. The normative era extends over 98% of our history. 
Then, for a very short period of time, from the dawn of large-scale agriculture in major urban centers, say really from 3000 BCE until about 500 years ago, we have what we'll call the era of dismantling the animate. And so normative was animism until this point that the cultures that were losing it even communicate to us in their myths and epics, something's going on here that's not quite right. The Greeks tell us in real time about the loss of animacy. They lament it as it's happening. You can see in their texts the nymphs and naiads go from living presences, interacted with, spoken to, worshipped, felt, to ideas and concepts metaphors and symbols, the living forces of the world reduced to words on a page, frozen in impersonal marble. And then only in the last 500 years, a tiny sliver, one-tenth of one percent of human history, do we find in the Western world what we could call the post-animate era, the age of dead matter, one-tenth of one percent of human history which, of course, also happens to coincide with an era of unprecedented global destruction. But, as we'll see, the animate does not go quietly. It pervades human experience. It finds its way into children's cartoons and fairy tales and folklore and Disney and Pixar films. It forms the substrate of many of the world's religions, which are structural shells that house deep animist cores. It thrives across the Indian subcontinent, it houses itself in backyard spirit houses across Southeast Asia. It lives in sub-Saharan African groves and the favelas of Brazil, where the Orishas dart about in revelrous play. It lives on because it pervades us. It is the default somatic way of experiencing reality, which only fades when our relationship with our own bodies fade, when we construct thicker and thicker walls between us and moonlight, between our bare skin and the morning mists. The animate waits for us, waits for a tingle to travel the spine in the woods as we hear a strange noise. It lives, it lives, just under a dead layer of postmodern skin. So yeah, in terms of time, animism is the norm. And it's also the norm in terms of geographic scope, in terms of space. Name me a culture other than the postmodern one we inhabit in this tiny sliver of one-tenth of one percent of human history that does not see a world that is alive with forces, infused with life, teeming with vibrancy, that is not aware of confluences in the landscape with which it is in relation, that does not feed the spirits every single day. You can't because it's simply the way it is. From the Aleutian Islands to New Zealand, across the blue Pacific to Hawaii and back, from the Kalahari and the Namib deserts to the verdant Congo Basin, the homes of Oshosi and Oshun, to the Serengeti to the sands of Araby, from northern Sweden to Siberia, to Sri Lanka and Japan, to Vietnam, to Easter Island, to Peru, to the Hudson Bay, to the tip of Tierra del Fuego, all across the world for all time south to north, low to high. Hi, the roof of the world itself, in fact, is populated with nature spirits. Zaz and Lu and Mo, who the Tibetans have names for, interact with, feed, placate, sing to, 
and so is the Amazon Basin, and so is the Jordan River, and so is the Congo. Seven pages it took the Spanish explorer Ramon Panay to list the names of all the classes of the animate beings that the Taino people identified in plant and tree and stream and stone and sea. And don't even get me started on the Greeks. The Greek universe was animate from the smallest sprout to the continents themselves. It's no accident when Greek writing appears on the scene we find first and foremost descriptions of an animate sentient world. Every grove and cave and spring and peak and isle in Greece inhabited by forces that had been individually meticulously felt experience named and honored over thousands and thousands of years. The vastness, the all-pervasive nature of this is worth repeating. The specificity of it is worth repeating. Specific songs for specific forces, specific rituals for specific confluences determined by celestial time and by earthly ebbs and flows, wavy serpent spirits whose dominion is water from Africa to India to Vietnam to Australia. The commonality is worth repeating, so that an Aleutian Islander would instantly recognize what a Siberian shaman was up to when their gaze lifted skyward to the beat of the drum, and the Siberian would recognize the Amazonian, and the Hawaiian, and the Druidic. The only one they wouldn't recognize, the bastard descendant of the last one-tenth of one percent of human history. They wouldn't recognize Elon Musk, or Karl Marx, or Karl Rove or Stalin from Eisenhower, or Deepak Chopra from, as they call him in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Sigmund Freud dude, because we're the exception. We're non-normative. This is why, in a speech from 1980, indigenous activist Russell Means is quoted as saying that neither Marxism nor capitalism nor science nor modern Christianity have any resonance with him, because all are extensions of de-animated worldviews. There are forces at work in the world and in nature, Means says, that the modern European mind cannot even comprehend. Thirdly, Animism is normative in the sense that so deeply is it ingrained into the human heart and mind and eye, so deeply inherent is animism, that there wasn't even a word for it until the 1800s. It was never described as anything other than simply the way things are, the water in which we swim. This is highly important for reasons we'll get into in a minute, because it means that when postmodern culture looks at animism, it does so through the lens of isms. It does so assuming that animism must be, like the world of the postmodernist, an abstract overlay of belief that is applied to the world through mental constructs, and not simply the felt somatic experience of the way things are. So now we've established some terms, we've established what we mean by normative, and we've possibly gotten some critics ready to argue. But really, this episode isn't about arguing. It's about feeling. What I really want to convey here, in addition to this simple breadth and scope, is a feeling. A feeling that all of us have had. A feeling of deep, tingling, breathy relationality that exists between us and the land the sky, the rivers, the oceans around us. A feeling that is so fundamental, 
so familiar, so primal, so foundational, that we wander like lost children without it, and that it just might be the thing that saves us in the end. Animism is normative consciousness. Today on The Emerald. You've felt it. I know you have. All but the deadest of us have felt it. For us, now, animism can seem abstract. It can seem far away. Until, says Anne Rowe, we find ourselves lost in the woods at dusk. We take a wrong turn on the trail, walk into an unfamiliar stretch of forest. Then it's amazing how quickly animism returns. Or perhaps we feel it when the temple bell rings. Hmm. And the drums sound and the voices rise in honor of the forces of brook and tree. Or perhaps you felt it when you heard a story of dark woods and moaning oaks. Perhaps you felt it when you were out backpacking. And after the phone battery dies and you get a little space from your emails. And it's just you now in the natural world. And you spend a few nights amid the creaking trees and the whispering winds and the gurgle of water, and you sweat a bit of tension out of your limbs. That's an important piece. And the fog of agitated thought starts to dissipate, and things start to settle into their primeval flow, and nature ceases to be a backdrop, ceases to be scenery, and becomes instead the matrix within which you move and think and breathe. And abstract thoughts about what you have to do next Wednesday or what that email you got from your boss really means start to melt away. And instead, you find yourself interacting with the world directly, not through a veil of thought, but directly, gathering wood and lighting fire and drinking water and preparing food and maybe singing at night or arranging stones in little circles. And your senses start to waken and little details of the forest begin to shine out at you. And being becomes something very different than being in a world of only humans and screens. Being becomes something that is an agreement, somehow, between you and the larger world. And that larger world is an extension of you, and you are an extension of it. And there is a confluence, a meeting place between you and the world. And in that meeting place, things move, and things shine, and everything is alive. And why, when we get out into nature, do we start to experience things this way? We start to experience things this way because animism is normative consciousness. Myself, I grew up among animists who probably didn't even know they were animist. The Zen Buddhist tradition I grew up in, imported to the West, was primarily focused on silent meditation, but scratched just below the surface into the koans and stories and chants, and a whole animate world revealed itself. A world of shapeshifters inhabiting fox bodies, and self-sacrificial parrots and talking monkeys. A world of mountain ogres and hungry ghosts, and feast days for spirits. 
Even the drum we played to provide a steady rhythm for chanting was carved in the shape of a whale, an animate world alive with being. When we went to India when I was 13, that animate world exploded into its full glory, a cosmos and natural world teeming with gods and goddesses, with animate beings, stones and trees imbued with life, worshipped right at the center of village life. As I studied Tibetan Buddhism in my teenage years, I gazed upwards at skies populated with dakas and dakinis, dancing beings. You can see them in certain clouds. Those wispy cirrus clouds that you find in the Tonka paintings set against azure skies, like the fleeting dance of an ephemeral sentient light, high and clear. The more I looked, the more I found. The traditions of the Lakota Sweat Lodge, which I was introduced to by some friends, spoke of the stones as grandfathers. Songs rang out in honor of Thunder Nation. In the Taoist martial arts, I learned of Shen, spirit, and its movement through the body. In the writing of Keats and Tolkien and Wordsworth and Coleridge, the animate sparkled and lived. My Brazilian Capoeira teacher told me that going upside down sends us into the spirit world, the world of the Orishas. All of this showed me something. Animism isn't gone. It's alive. It is, in fact, the greatest living cultural commonality between people all across the world still today. Because animism is normative consciousness. Dig a little, and you find this animacy everywhere you look. The monotheistic traditions are utterly full of it. Modern-day Christians turn up their nose at indigenous visions of therioanthropic beings, half-humans, half-animals, and then take a look at their own church walls and what's painted there. Luminous beings with human bodies and bird wings. The Hebraic traditions are teeming with the angelic forces of the natural world. The Islamic world is populated with fiery spirits, the jinn, which still grace the big screen in films like Aladdin. Numerous categories of jinn are known and described. Their behaviors are well documented, supplicating them as a time-honored tradition. And here's a fact for you. 54% of Icelanders will tell you that elves exist. I'm not going to use the word believe for reasons I'll explain later. But according to an academic paper published in 2000 titled The Elves' Point of View, over half of Icelanders say that elves exist. As one Icelandic lady quoted in The Atlantic summarized, quote, If this was just one crazy lady talking about invisible friends, it's really easy to laugh about that. But to have people through hundreds of years talking about the same thing, it's beyond one or two crazy ladies. It's part of the nation. So why, wherever I travel, whatever tradition I encounter, from British poetry to Nigerian Ifa to Western alchemy to the Kabbalah to the songs of Orpheus, why do I find this animate vision? Why in every home I visit from India to Cambodia do I see household guardian deities staring back at me with big round eyes? Because animism is normative consciousness. For all that we think that we're beyond animism, our modern world is totally steeped in it. In children's cartoons, the trees are full of eyes. Even teacups and saucers have eyes and voices. Animals talk. Trees do too. Mushrooms have a life all their own. I've seen some weird shit, says Alice to Dorothy in that popular meme, meaning she's gone down the rabbit hole into the world where all things talk. The realm of fairy itself, with its animate stones, 
This fairy realm is something that humans perpetually envision, describe, and seek. We cannot get away from it even if we try. For example, why do ads for technology hardware and networking systems insist on showing us a pulsing world of luminous, animate, glowing connectivity? Why do visions of future technology show us floating animate icons imbued with some mystic life force, glowing like the white stone of revelation? Why, when the first generation of internet users came of age, did they immediately populate the internet with memes focused around what? Talking animals. In fact, we hear sometimes that the internet is simply an excuse for cat videos. Lolcats, cats that lure us in with their witty banter. Why do cartoon anime characters have these big lamp-like eyes, these wet, shiny eyes? Why do we treat Hello Kitty with such adoration? Animate. Anime. Right? Why in the early 2000s was there an onslaught of indie rock bands all named after animals? Grizzly Bear, Panda Bear, Band of Horses, Fleet Foxes, Deer Hoof, Deer Tick, Deer Hunter, Wolf Parade, The Crystal Wolves, Wolf Mother. Why at the height of the Age of Reason, Victorian England was the best-selling book, a book on fairy stories? How come every time we try to move away from the animate do we find it completely surrounds us? Why? Because animism is normative consciousness. So, animism. Let's look up the word in the dictionary. The Oxford English Dictionary defines animism as, quote, the attribution of a soul to plants, inanimate objects, and natural phenomena. Yeah, So the use of the word inanimate right there in the definition is what we might call an inherent bias. It's a logical fallacy known as circular definition. In other words, to categorize people as animist requires a pre-existing worldview in which everything is assumed to be inanimate. And therefore, in that view, for a person to think that the world is animate must require some abstract belief system laid over the top of an inherently inanimate world. As Nareet Bird David says, the entire way we relate to animism in the modern world is based on the, quote, insistence that the Western experience of the material world as inanimate entities is normative and mature. It's pretty widely known at this point that the word animism is a modern construct. Animist cultures don't call themselves animist. Quote, the animist perspective is so widely held and inherent to most indigenous peoples that they often do not even have a word in their languages that corresponds to animism or even religion. The term is an anthropological construct. And it was constructed rather recently. Interestingly enough, it came into common parlance through the founder of cultural anthropology himself, Edward Tyler. Speaking of inherent bias, here's what Tyler said about animism. He says animism is, quote, a mistake about the nature of the world in which people believe in souls or spirits or discourse about non-empirical beings. Animism was the first significant theory that humans thought and taught to their descendants. Animism began and continues as a way of trying to make sense of the world. It is a mythopoetic mode of discourse that explains life and events to those not yet fully acculturated to the practice of rationalist science. And of course, as Graham Harvey says, 
only Tyler's generation and colleagues had gained sufficient scientific ability to look back in time and look around at contemporary cultures to see the mistake that had been and was still being made. So let's go back to our line of a thousand people and really the utter hubris it takes for one person to say to all the other 999, well, you're all categorically wrong. All the aboriginal elders dating back 60,000 years, all the Celtic seers, thousands of years of druidic lineage, all the Yoruban priestesses and the Khoisan dancers and the old Hmong ladies feeding the forest spirits and the Sami drummers and the Tungus shamans and the Weechal journeyers and the Pueblo turtle dancers and, say, Homer and Virgil and all the great authors of the classics and all the romantic poets and all the bards and all the Brahmins chanting the Vedic hymns and all the village spirit mediums and the Inuit whale singers and the composers of the Haida epics and generation upon generation upon generation, 99.9% of humanity, all of you are wrong. You clearly just needed to have a way to explain the world, so you came up with some abstract belief system about talking trees and stones and life force, and now that we have science, we don't need any of that because the world is made up of lifeless hunks of colliding matter, and that's all there is to it, and you're wrong and we're right. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> So that's an audacity that I would not venture to have towards my ancestors who managed to survive for 300,000 years and knew a whole lot about a whole lot of things that have since gone downstream. But here's the heart of it. When modern Western science encountered animism absolutely everywhere, they assumed that its prevalence said something about the people in question. They never paused to consider that the fact that they were the only ones who did not see the world in this way said more about them than about the 99% of people who did. The fact is, the 99% were normative. They were not. Because animism is normative consciousness. talk about the word belief for a bit. That's another word that you don't find a whole lot in indigenous cultures. Belief. The assumption with the word belief is that there is the empirical material world and then everything else exists as a set of abstract principles that you either assign validity to or you don't. You believe that chi or prana or life force exists even though you haven't seen it. You believe that there is a nymph that inhabits that spring even though you haven't seen her. You believe through some set of inferences and abstractions, you believe in unseen forces even though you haven't seen them. Of course, this view can only arise in an era already steeped in abstract thought, in what Henry Corbin called the dead body of an angel. It assumes a pre-existing separation between human beings and the natural world. How about this? 
Our ancestors' interaction with the natural world included the experience of what we now call unseen forces because we don't see them anymore. They did. They saw them. Anthropologist David Lewis Williams spent his career demonstrating that the nature of religious or spiritual experience is not based on thinking things up, but on direct experience felt in heightened states of awareness. Take it way back to episode two of this podcast to the Siberian people who watch a man grow horns as he's shamanizing. That's not an idea or a thought. It's not a belief. The Tunga shaman climbing the world tree and suckling from the reindeer mother isn't a belief. It's something he experienced in trance. The energy that rises in the Khoisan dancer isn't something they believe in. It's something that rises so tangibly that they have names for all of its stages, they've described all the auditory phenomena that come along with it. The force of it brings such potency that bodies are doubled over, noses erupt in bleeding. They don't have to believe it's real. They feel it. They know it. They understand it. They understand how to access it. They understand the dangers that come with it. They understand the safeguards that need to be put in place in order to access it in a healthy way. They understand how to treat it respectfully. They understand what rhythms call it. Animism isn't an abstract belief. It's not an idea. It's something you experience. It's you on the camping trip humming in tune with the waters. It's feet pounding on the clay of the kiva floor. It's the sweat that springs from the yogi's neck. It's the eyes rolling back into the head of the Sri Lankan trance dancer. It is the convulsions of the village trance medium, and I've seen those convulsions. You tell me that's some abstract idea. It's the high heat of the drumming, the cries of Jai Ma, Jai Ma. It's 300,000 people on pilgrimage to see a single tree. It's Zorba exhorting to his dear friend, Come at once, I've found a small green stone. It's life, the force of life, the force of radiance, kinetic energy energy everywhere permeating all things. The scientists might say, yes, but that's just the light on the water. Yes, but that's just endorphins from dancing. Yes, holy light, holy water, holy endorphins, holy nectars of the skull. These things aren't separate. They aren't material over here and abstract belief over here. They are seamless experience. The body of the angel, alive and humming. Anthropologist Tim Ingold says this, Hunter-gatherers do not, as a rule, approach their environment as an external world of nature that has to be grasped intellectually. Indeed, the separation of mind and nature has no place in their thought and practice. And to perceive the world in this way, as he says, to perceive the world as a seamless continuum means that you are already situated in a world, this is his quote, and committed to the relationship this entails. In other words, questions about belief only arise once you have extracted yourself from this world of relationships and dwell instead in the world of abstract principles and thoughts. This abstraction, this extraction, this slaying of the angel, as Corbin puts it, is the exception rather than the rule, because animism is normative consciousness. <laughs> Everybody, lift your hand up. Everybody, say it with me. 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 Everybody, say it with
must it have been like for the Greeks to watch their nymphs turn to stone in real time, to witness the deanimation of their own world, to see a world become increasingly reliant on unholy contraptions, to see the thing itself become less important than the idea or essence of the thing, to watch stories go from living, vocalized entities to abstractions carved in stone. It goes something like this. You start out living completely immersed in nature, utterly dependent upon, say, a local spring for your survival. And that spring is dear to you. It's where you walk with empty clay vessels every day to get water. And that journey there takes time. It might be a mile or more from your village, and several villages might depend on that spring. So to reach the spring is a journey. You have to walk through thorny brush and olive groves and stony outcroppings to get there. And the soft padding of feet and the buzzing flies and the hot late afternoon sun and the bleeding goats, the bells clanking around their necks. There's a hypnotic rhythm to the journey to the spring. You might even find yourself singing along to the rhythm of your own footsteps. And the trotting of the path is like the repetition of an old song. And the song, the footsteps, the heat, the sun, combine to take you into a state. You know the state I'm speaking of, because you felt it. And so when you reach the spring, you are already perceiving things with a little more shine, a little more lucidity. And then, there's the spring. The very heart of your life, the source of everything, the source of the food you eat and the songs you sing. Maybe it's a small pool among the rocks, and children are splashing in the water that runs out from it. And the water sparkles in the sun at golden hour. And the rocks around the spring grow with ivy and laurels. This is your medicine chest. The spring grows with medicine that takes you into even further heightened states of perception. The laurels are the plant of visions, which is why they're worn in a wreath next to the temples of the skull, and perhaps why the temples of the skull are called temples. But that's another story. And the ivy coils around the ceremonial thyrsus, and on certain moonlit nights there's singing and drumming around the spring, and wild cries of ecstasy, and the chanting of stories and the singing of myths, and the trance is thick like honey, and the water of the spring is sweet. And so the spring is a place of animacy, of flow, partially because of the life-giving water that bubbles up right from the ground, and partially because of the state you are in when you perceive it. You've been in ecstatic states and drank the water of the spring in moonlit revelry. You've stumbled back to that spring with throat parched after a long journey into the mountains. You've slaked your thirst at that spring when life has been hard and food scarce. You offered that spring food when crops failed and when relatives passed on to the next world. You have a relationship with that spring that spans the spectrum of your own consciousness. From the flow of grief to the honey of trance, the spring is there, bubbling. The two meet in a meeting place, your perception, and nature itself. They meet in a seamless continuum. And in that seamless continuum, it's not difficult to see the nymphs and naiads who live there. Remember, the word nymph means a swelling, a welling up. The word naiad means flow. Even with our postmodern fog of abstract ideas clouding our eyes, I bet you've seen the welling up. I bet you've seen the nymphs. I bet you've seen the nymphs 
that live where light meets water. In his authoritative book on animism, Graham Harvey says that animism is about actual relationships rather than possible ones. The nymph of the spring is not an abstraction. It's about a real relationship, a conjoined relationship, what is ultimately an inseparable relationship. We are bound to water sources like we are bound to family members. Only a society that rejects its own families would reject the spring as a living person. As Russell Means says, the materialist tradition of de-spiritualizing the universe is very similar to the mental process which goes into dehumanizing another person. For those in relationship with the spring, to experience the spring as a person, to see as Orpheus did nymphs swarming around a spring, makes perfect sense. We are talking about the meeting place of us and a larger world, and the larger world breathes, and the larger world moves and the larger world speaks, and the larger world flows, and the larger world has points of energetic confluence the way a body does, and every specific place reflects the whole, and we reflect the whole, and the whole reflects us. Personhood is everywhere. Agency is everywhere. Springs and watersheds have agency just as we do, probably more. There's no quality of personhood that is not equally reflected in land and sky and spring and stone. It is not a mistake to see persons everywhere. It is not a mistake to see beings. It is a reflection of right relationship. Why would we not see this world as persons with whom we are in relation? The world is full of persons, say the Ojibwe, only some of which are human. Because personhood is a wider category than humans. Rock persons, bear persons. Here's Harvey again. Quote, persons are related beings constituted by their many and various interactions with others. Persons are willful beings who gain meaning and power from their interactions. Persons are sociable beings who communicate with others. Persons need to be taught by stages, some marked by initiations, what it means to act as a person. We have never been separate, unique, or alone. It's time to stop deluding ourselves. Human cultures are not surrounded by nature or resources, but by a world full of cacophonous agencies, i.e. by many other vociferous persons. We are at home and our relations are all around us. The liberatory good life begins with the respectful acknowledgement of the presence of persons, human and other than human, who make up the community of life. This personhood is everywhere. It infuses everything. It is even in sap and bloodstreams and nostrils where two gods live, sipping air for us from the vibrant ethers. There is a field, say some tantras, that surrounds the body that is made up of living, animate, protector deities as numerous as the individual scales on a suit of armor, each with its own throne, each surrounded in a halo of fire. There is coyote and corn woman, bee boy and pollen girl. There are nymphs, and naiads and dryads and undines and nereids and sirens and such. There are nagas and mo and lu and devas and dakas and dakinis and gandharvas and kecharis and skullbearers. The Tibetan tantras will turn your field of vision into a teeming worldscape of sentience, populated by copper-crowned kings and jackal-faced yoginis. There are jinn and seraphim and cherubim. Electrum, Metatron, and Elohim. This world of consciousness is populated, 
When you dream, you dream of persons. When you write fiction, you write stories of persons. Attempts to write fiction from the perspective of non-humans still results in stories from the perspective of personhood. When tonka painters sketch the tiniest details of the ornaments of a great host of persons that span the cosmos from the depths to the heights, they're painting nature as it is populated with persons. The world is the body of a great being, made up of beings, beings within beings within beings within beings. This is the natural way of seeing it. Why? Because animism is normative consciousness. But what happens to the relationship between us and the spring as the cities grow and the water source is diverted and there is less and less time to spend journeying to the spring to begin with? Maybe you no longer go yourself to the spring. Maybe you pay someone to do it for you. Or maybe you get your water from Fiji from halfway across the ocean. There's a postmodern proposition if there ever was one. And there is so much less time for honoring things. And the mechanisms which once led you to experience the spring as a familial person, the footsteps, the goat bells, the buzzing of insects, the songs, are less available. And the stories and hymns are all written down now. It preserves them, yes, but it means very simply that nymphs now become ideas rather than persons. You can think about nymphs without ever interacting with them. Just as my son knows the word for owl before he's ever seen an owl, and the body of written story that has passed down through generations further and further removed from the moonlight on the spring, from the wild calls of ecstasy, from the laurel wreaths at the temples, means that we can analyze the stories and songs as nothing but abstract thoughts or beliefs. We can dissect the myth the way we dissect a corpse without ever having witnessed the living thing. This is exactly what Henry Corbin meant by the world of rational, abstract thought living on the dead body of an angel, the angel's corpse, in which the angel is animacy, is this vision of personhood, is the portal between us and the natural world, the portal to the real. The angel in Friedrich Dürrenmatt's poem, An Angel Comes to Babylon, describes this vision of animacy, quote, I see molded in the plants, the animals, that which lives in the formless stars, enraptured and burning with visions. The death of this angel of animacy is the death of cosmic personhood, of living, ebullient, radiant relationality in favor of the abstract rational. It's also the death of a massive part of us. In 1999, Canadian scholar Paul Khalili published a bizarre, brilliant, and nearly inaccessible screed on the loss of the animate called the angel's corpse. He says, quote, The sophistication of the thinking mind has come about at the cost of a figurative lobotomy where the part of our psyche that allowed us to come into direct contact with real angels was liquidated. Unlike previous eras in human history, 
when angels were vital to human culture by means of their ability to transmutate the invisible into the visible and vice versa, today, during these final months of the second millennium, the angel is dead. The mortal remains of the angel are signified by the overpowering predominance given to rational abstraction. What this means is that we have lost the cognitive faculty that in the past allowed humans to experience an angelophany. In other words, if the angel is a corpse, then so is part of our psyche, which, in reducing the angel into mortal abstraction, has in turn annihilated itself in the wake of the angelic death. So let's return for a moment to what Russell Means said, that there are forces at work within nature that the modern mind can't even comprehend. We can't comprehend these forces because they live and play in the relational space between us and the natural world. And we've decided that this type of cognition, what Corbin called suprasensory cognition, isn't necessary. We've liquidated this part of ourselves in favor of the abstract realm of ideas. Angels, spirits, persons, stone beings, nymphs, live precisely in the place where the individual consciousness meets the world. They are a living confluence. This is why Khalili says this, quote, precisely because the angel is purported to occupy an interworld located somewhere between heaven and earth, or to be more exact, where transcendence collapses from its height and folds together with imminence. Imagining the angel implies finding the point at which imminence and transcendence are in a relation of juxtaposition. That is a heady way of saying that when you take away the context of the path and the footsteps and the buzzing insects and the light on the water and the songs and the trance rituals and the deep relationality and interdependence from the spring, then the nymph becomes an idea rather than a presence and we lose our ability to see them. I think about angels, wrote Eugenio Montali in his poem Satura, scattered here and there, unobserved. And if no one sees them, it is because other eyes are needed, which I do not have. Other eyes are needed. We assume that the forces of nature described by our ancestors were unseen, again, because we don't see them. The pressing question is, have we lost the eyes to see? As historian Paul Vane once said, when one does not see what one does not see, one does not even see that one is blind. This different way of seeing, this ancestral animate seeing, conjunctive seeing, the seeing of nymphs and angels, the seeing of the personhood of things, was described by a Connecticut college professor named F.E. Krantz. When Krantz introduced his reorientation thesis in front of his colleagues in 1985, he knew there would be skeptics. As Tom Cheatham says, quote, Krantz was cautious and reticent about his thesis that the ancients experienced the world in a way radically different from ours. He knew he faced an uphill battle making his case. Krantz expressed many times his rueful awareness of the generally disbelieving scholarly response. And what was so radical about what Krantz said? He said, simply, that the conjunctive mind experienced by our ancestors was, in fact, normative consciousness, and that our way of seeing, the detached, materialistic, objectified way of seeing, is, in fact, the anomaly. 
The thrust of my argument, Grant said, is not that there were different theories about the same seeing and knowing, but rather that there were different seeings and knowings. Different eyes through which the world was seen. Eyes that saw a world not separate, teeming with luminous persons. A way of seeing that has been largely lost. All of this led Krantz to state that modern thought is, quote, different from, even alien to, all previous thought, and there is nothing normative or even normal about it or us. Why? Because animism is normative consciousness. Much has been written about how and why this animate vision was lost. Some point to Descartes. For Henry Corbin, it was a 12th century thing. Yet the Greeks described this loss as it was happening over 3,000 years ago. David Abrams singles out the development of written language, which certainly shifts our focus from confluences of nymphs to confluences of letters, from nymphs as felt presences to nymphs as concepts. This loss has mostly occurred, of course, in the West, in what is called modern industrialized civilization. Nymphs fade when cities grow, because our basic relationality, at least on the surface, changes. When we do not have as much daily interaction with the spring, the spring, even though we are just as dependent upon it, fades in mind and memory. But it's not so simple to pinpoint exactly when and where the loss occurred. It's not totally a west-east thing or a north-south thing. At the same time when Tyler, that British anthropologist, was busy poo-pooing animism, William Butler Yeats was busy exclaiming that the Irish still maintain their relationship with the fairies of the countryside. At the height of the Age of Reason, Coleridge and Wordsworth were reveling in an animate vision, and the British public was deeply along for the ride. If we say the split happened with Descartes, then what about Blake's angelic visitations? Instead of trying to highlight one point, we can say instead that there are choices along the way that we have made and that we make. Times when we choose again and again to flee from the immediacy of the moment as individual people and as cultures. Much has been sacrificed in the name of progress and convenience. And we may find, if we're not finding it already, that fashioning a life focused on convenience isn't convenient at all. Time and time again, the very things that are conducive to animate vision are the things that we sideline. We sacrifice the raw immediacy of the hunter-gatherer for the security of having grain stores for the next year. And then we find that minds that are too forward-focused can't see the animate anymore. We sacrifice the journey to the spring and all the context it brings in favor of this same convenient forward vision. We sacrifice the feeding of the spirits in favor of spiritualities that seek to take us beyond. We sacrifice our relationship to place, our adherence to ritual, the rhythm of slow and steady growth, the valuation of carefully cultivated heightened states of perception, the very things that allow us to see the presence of nymphs and angels. The church made nymphs illegal. Science made them irrelevant. World War I and World War II marked a profound loss for this animate vision. For if it's one thing the nymphs will not stick around for, it's bombs. A nymph might venture to an old Greek battlefield to shed a tear for a soldier dying of a sword stroke. 
but bombs? Why would they be party to such idiocy? Once human beings know that they have the power to destroy the entire world, it's difficult to raise our eyes again to nature in the same way. It's difficult to find proper alignment. The spirals of self-obsession and shame that come with such a change are difficult to overcome. We become overlords that can do little but hang our heads to the consequences of our own self-generated world. So these are choices we made and that we make along the way. And to start to recover this animate vision is also a choice. And this is the good news portion of the episode. For fundamentally, as we said at the beginning, it still lives. The animate lives. Everywhere we turn, if we look, we see the sparkle of the animate. And we are all naturally, inherently animists. This doesn't mean that we have to run to the nearest rock and embrace it and pretend that we hear it talking. We can't force an animate vision. Some in the New Age movement have certainly tried. What we can do is slowly, methodically, purposefully start to reshape our lives and our communities so that we prioritize those things that allow the animate to shine through. Slowly, methodically, purposefully take our attention to building structures that foster presence, relationality, ritual reconnection, and that value the confluence, the place where we meet nature, where the light of the imaginal shines. This vision, now you've heard me say in so many episodes, is profoundly necessary for many reasons. For this episode, I'll summarize it very simply. If the world is already seen to be dead, then how can we possibly save it? Why would we save it? If the world is dead, then we're dead too. But it is said, Paul Khalili writes, that the corpse of an angel leaves a beautiful floral perfume, a scent for us to follow. Perhaps like oracles breathing the laurel fumes over the springs at Delphi, perhaps we can follow this scent to the place of animate vision. Perhaps we can wake the angel up. Wake, angel. Wake, animate vision. Wake, elm and oak and ash and willow. Wake, old forgotten stones. Wake, seas of bristling coral. Wake, nymphs and naiads, ondines and nereids, sea beings and cloud nations and skyfarers and nagas of the rills and streams. Wake with voice and plumes of fairy fire and stir these deadened hearts so that they see. Stir these deadened hearts so that they see. Author David Quinn writes, Anyone who views the world as a sacred place and humans as worthy of a place in a sacred place is an animist. Why? Because animism is normative consciousness. Hope you enjoyed this musical reimagining of animism as normative consciousness. Special thanks to CD Bay for providing some new vocals for this episode. And you can find CD Bay's music on Spotify. It's S I D I B E. I used Janae Rogers' wonderful song, Your Body, 
my name in this episode as well. And her music can be found at Vine Music on Instagram. And Ben Murphy from the School of Mythopoetics provided some background vocals. This episode contains reference to many books, articles, songs, etc. These include Imaginal Love by Tom Cheatham, the 1992 film Thunderheart starring Val Kilmer and John Trudell, An Account of the Antiquities of the Indians by Ramon Panay, Orpheus, The Song of Life by Anne Rowe, Animism Revisited by Narit Bird-David, Satira, a poem by Eugenio Montali, Sand Talk by Tyson Yancaporta, Native American Religious and Cultural Freedom, an introductory essay by the President and Fellows of Harvard College and Diana Eck, Zorba the Greek by Nikos Kazantzakis, The Angel's Corpse by Paul Kalili, Fantastic Metamorphoses, Other Worlds by Marina Warner, The Book of Revelation from the Bible, Russell Means' speech at the 1980 Black Hills International Survival Gathering, you can find it easily online, Why So Many Icelanders Still Believe in Invisible Elves by Ryan Jacobs, writing in The Atlantic, October 29, 2013, An Angel Comes to Babylon, a poem by Friedrich Durenmatt, Animism, Respecting the Natural World by Graham Harvey, the film Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and of course, The Ubiquitous Memes of the Lolcats. I never knew if it was lolcats or LOL cats, and I still don't. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth.